hub, and spoke. Audio Collective. Print is Dead is made possible with the support of MagCulture. Read our online journal, listen to our podcast, and visit our shop to discover why we're convinced print is very much alive. All available at magculture.com. So print is dying for different reasons. The internet, it's sometimes amazing, and other times it's very strange to me. And sometimes things like Instagram, someone I've worked with quite a few times, Gigi Hadid is very famous. She has whatever it is, 80 million followers. And when she posts what I would consider not a great shot of herself trying on a new pair of sneakers, you get 3.8 million people saying, fabulous, amazing, incredible, you're a goddess, (laughs) you're amazing, incredible, wow. This is Print is Dead, Long Live Print, a podcast about magazines and the people who made and make them. I'm Deborah Bishop. I'm George Gendron. I'm Patrick Mitchell. Today's guest, the celebrated photographer Albert Watson, OBE, is a man on the move. This is not a recent development. Watson's professional journey began in Scotland in 1959, where he studied mathematics at night. His day job? Working for the Ministry of Defense, plotting courses, speed, altitude, distance, payload, for British missiles pointed towards Cold War Russia. Watson's affinity for the mathematical gave way to his interest in the arts when, in school, he dove headfirst into all of them, drawing, painting, textiles, pottery, silversmithing, and graphic design. Later, on his 21st birthday, his wife bought him a small camera. He became obsessed. All I know is that I clicked the shutter and suddenly, magically, I got negatives back that I could learn to process myself. And then, even better, I got into a dark room with a piece of white paper under an enlarger and you put it in some chemistry and lo and behold, up comes an image. Magic, black magic, I called it. Amazing, insane, beautiful. Then came the magazines, Harper's Bazaar, GQ, Mademoiselle, Entertainment Weekly, Details, and Vogue, all the Vogues, and the ad campaigns, Prada, Chanel, Revlon, and Levi's. And yet, after all that, talk to the man about his work, any facet of his career, and the conversation invariably comes back to the print, the math, the chemistry, the graphic design involved, and about the journey the print takes from camera to magazine, from magazine to gallery, and, sometimes, from gallery to museum, as so many of his have. Our editor-at-large, George Gendron, talked to Watson about all of it, day rates, social media, and that stunning apartment in Tribeca. I want to go back to a conversation you and I were having just yesterday, and I said to you, I think there are a lot of people, even veterans of the magazine industry, who look around and think that if you had to sum up the effects of the internet and technological change on the magazine industry, you'd say, oh, well, magazines, the ones that are still around, have fewer ad pages and therefore their budgets are smaller. But you were telling me about the fashion magazines and you did a great job of comparing a shoot that you might have done for a fashion magazine, let's say back in 2000, and what the economics of that might have been compared to how that works today. Could you do that for us here? Sure. Basically, I would get a call at different times of the year. And of course, it related to collections. And we are speaking about fashion magazines. Right, right. Uh, I would get a call from a magazine and they would say, where do you want to go this winter? Now, what they mean by that is, where do you want to go where there's some sun and that you can get up in the morning at 7.30, 8 o'clock and then work until you know 4.30 in the afternoon. And you do summer clothes and it's somewhere where you can work outside. So they end up with outside pictures, you know, and sometimes we'd go to the desert Southwest. You might go to New Mexico or uh, Arizona. You go to White Sands or you go to Death Valley, you go to Palm Springs, perhaps. And you would go to these locations. And basically what would happen is a model would be flown in from Paris, maybe New York, could be London. Makeup artists could come from Paris or New York. Once in a while, there'd be somebody in LA and you fly them all in to, let's say, Death Valley. And we arrived there 
on a Sunday. And then on Monday, we do try-ons. And in the olden days, we did Polaroids. Or nowadays, you do a digital file. Right. And you try on all the clothes to see where you're going, what you're doing. You would have a heads up about that. So now going to the economics of that, of course, there's a hotel, there's food, there's road transportation, there's the hiring of a vehicle that we would be in. Sometimes it was better for us to be in a van, not a you know Winnebago type large vehicle. It was more flexible. But there was a large budget. And in the end, I'm sure it cost the magazine thousands of dollars to do that. What was uh, your day rate back then, Albert? The day rate for a magazine could vary gigantically. Back then, you would probably be looking at maybe seven fifty a page and then maybe $1,500 for a cover or something like that, and you might do 18, 20 pages. So in the end, of course, it was nothing like an advertising rate. The important thing was it didn't cost me anything. Nobody ever said, oh, by the way, you have to pay for this shooting. Right. Right. And although we're now laughing, that unfortunately is where we are now. Magazines don't have any money at all because the advertising is down. Magazine numbers are down. Things are at a critical state right now where magazines have a very hard time. And there are small groups that do independent magazines that do art magazines, and they might do them with quite nice printing. And sometimes they do four magazines a year, sometimes right. two a year. They're underground magazines, and you have a lot of freedom. But of course, for them also, you have to pay for the shooting. And that's one thing that's changed. So sometimes a young photographer has to save up, and he has to beg favors and ask assistants to work for nothing and models to work for nothing and hairdressers to work for nothing. And you're certainly not flying to Palm Springs and staying in a hotel. So that's changed. Now, another side issue of all of this, we're discussing print is dead and magazines and so on, et cetera, et cetera. Magazines are failing now all the time and their numbers are catastrophically low. But another slight issue is that the fashion business in general is on life support. There's a problem right now because a lot of the fashion business is, is dying. And a lot of it is dying because young people in general are not so interested in fashion. They're a little bit more interested in styling. Yeah. And I think I mentioned to you that I photographed in a high school 20 years ago. And there's a high school near me right now. And when you look at what the kids were wearing 20 years ago, I still have the pictures. And you see what they're wearing now. Guess what? It's pretty much the same thing. And now the vast majority of the girls in the school, of course, wear jeans and they wear hoodies or an anorak because it's obviously warmer than a hoodie. Basically, fashion is slowly but surely grinding to a halt. And what you're seeing right now in fashion is recycling's going on a lot, but the overall mass change of fashion doesn't happen anymore. So if you start looking at the way kids dressed in 1952 and looked at the way they dressed in 63 and then 68 and 69, there is a vast difference between the overall style of young kids and what they're into and what happened with the change in music and so on. So going back to everything, print is dying for different reasons, you know, right. and the internet is it's sometimes amazing and doing amazing things. Other times, it's very strange to me. And uh, sometimes things like Instagram, someone I've worked with quite a few times, Gigi Hadid is very famous. She has whatever it is, 80 million followers. And when she posts what I would consider not a great shot of herself, trying on a new pair of sneakers, you get 3.8 million people saying, fabulous, amazing, incredible, you're a <laughs> goddess, you're amazing, incredible. Wow. Well, yeah. it's always well taken to go back to what you were saying about the fashion industry, which is it's not just the fashion magazines being impacted by magazine trends. The whole industry is changing. And of course, the same thing is true in music. It's stuck in a weird kind of rap, hip hop, disco influenced dance kind of thing. You, you look back at my generation right now, which looks old fashioned, of course, 
you look at a performance by Led Zeppelin or the Rolling Stones, basically they came out on stage and they sang, and that's what they did. They played their guitars and sang. Now, if you get Rihanna at a Super Bowl, there are not 20 dancers, my God, but 260 dancers, all dancing the same routine. And all of this, of course, is fluff and adding and so on. And, of course, people realize that if you just stick Rihanna out there on top of a platform, nowadays that isn't going to cut it. Especially if she was five months pregnant, that's not going to cut it at all. She's not going to be able to dance much. And therefore, there's a lot of stuff right now that's covered up with fluff and decoration, a bit like a Christmas tree, you know? So when you step back and think about this from your point of view, as a photographer, as I would dare say, a fine artist, what impact does this have on you creatively? Well, many photographers are different. They're, they're different types of photographer. And the fashion business very often attracted two types, attracted people in the end, really wanted to be fashion photographers. I mean, they loved fashion. They loved the fashion business. They love the buzz of fashion, the glamour of fashion. What photographer comes to mind that really symbolizes this kind of photographer for you? I would say someone who loves fashion and loves the fashion business and could easily be a fashion editor and who is a brilliant fashion photographer, Stephen Mizell, because he understands the difference between a bronze eyeliner and a charcoal eyeliner. He would research things very carefully from the fashion perspective. Now, the, another type of photographer that worked in the fashion business, a good example of it, would be Richard Avedon. Richard Avedon, strangely enough, to me, was not a fashion photographer, but he was a photographer that enjoyed photographing fashion. What am I saying? Is it not the same thing? It's actually different. Because in the end, Stephen might have had a hard job doing the West project that Avedon did. Or Stephen might have had a hard time photographing New Guinea warriors that Irving Penn did. Irving Penn was another photographer that enjoyed working in the fashion business. Well, let's put you in this category. He would have that, had a hard time doing Vegas, the strip. I, I was somebody who enjoyed photographing women and the fashion business was an obvious entry to that. And I did a lot of homework with fashion to understand fabrics, the light on fabrics, an obvious difference between, you know, a silk chiffon and a polyester nylon chiffon and so on. I did do the homework on that. My photographs in fashion were always based on pure photography. And sometimes I had difficulty with fashion editors. Grace Coddington once said to me, be careful with your pictures. They're becoming sometimes too strong. I'm a big fan of Grace Coddington. She was a brilliant fashion editor and she was really in touch with fashion. And I knew what she meant because there is a certain point where there is a, a key ingredient that should really be in a fashion picture where it should have a sense of fashionability. In other words, the photography should have a sense of fashionability. And maybe the best compliment I ever got, Franca Cezanne, who was a great editor of Italian Vogue, when I had an exhibition in Milan, I had done so many pictures for her, and she was never a big fan of the pictures. She would always prefer a Stephen Mizell picture. But the biggest compliment I ever got from her, she said, when you did the picture for me, I was never that crazy about the pictures. But now I see them in the Museum of Modern Art, I think they look better. This is a funny thing because at that point, you say, what is the difference? The difference is there's a journey that a photograph takes from the camera to a print that's printed in a magazine. You can do a picture for a fashion magazine and it can be totally successful. Everybody loves it. Hairdressers love it. Makeup artists love it. Fashion editors love it. Everybody loves it. And it's successful. And I had done a lot of that work. The work was at that time very successful. And it wasn't so photographic. It was more driven by what a magazine liked. I found out what they liked and I would do that. The problem was the journey a photograph takes from the camera to a magazine. And then there's a big quantum leap 
something can look fabulous in a magazine, and then you say, okay, now I'm going to put it in a coffee table book, right? What I suddenly realized that lots of the pictures, when I came to doing my first book, Cyclops, I looked at all these fashion pictures that were so successful, and, and I suddenly realized when I put it into a book format, it didn't look so good. And, and I was like, why is that? I did a good job on it. I think everybody loved it, but it doesn't look fabulous. It doesn't look amazing. It, quite honestly, it's not good enough for a book. And the journey that photograph takes, it then takes another quantum leap and ends up in a frame on a wall in a gallery. That's another leap it takes. And then it suddenly looks different there. And then it takes the final leap, you might say, into a museum wall. And a museum buys it, you know, whether it's the Getty or the National Portrait Gallery or something like that, that it makes it all the way. So there could be a point that you might say to a fashion photographer that he may not have that interest of the coffee table book, the gallery and museum. And if it does make the final journey that way, then he might say, well, yeah, that's pretty good. I'm happy with that, that it made the journey. Whereas there were other photographers, that was their goal right from the beginning. Every time they picked up a camera to work for a fashion magazine, that was their goal. They were hoping that every damn picture ended up on a museum wall. And so you were always looking for that. And I made that transition into that in the 80s. So my handheld, snappy, girl eating a banana type of picture that everybody loved suddenly developed into stronger pictures. Hence the comment by Grace Coddington. And in other words, your pictures are looking a bit heavy. So the good news is your pictures are getting heavy. The bad news is your pictures are getting heavy. <laughs> So several times you talked about, quote, the journey of a photograph, which was really interesting. I've never heard it put quite that way before. But now I want to talk about your journey. And I want to start in Scotland in your book, Creating Photographs. The book, the book opens with a wonderful statement. You said, I was born in Scotland and I went to school outside of Edinburgh. And I had a very ordinary childhood. And my mom was a hairdresser. My and, father started as a professional boxer, but then he became a physical education teacher. Yeah. Well, in the book, it just says, my mom was a hairdresser and my dad was a boxer. And I thought, well, where I yeah. come from, that's not an ordinary upbringing, having a father who was a boxer. Yeah. yeah. But then a little bit later, of course, he became a physical education teacher. Yeah. So that was a little bit more normal. So you have, if you move on to your education, a very interesting and unusual education in terms of your background that you can see manifest in your photographs even today. And so could you talk a little bit about graphic design and filmmaking, your education and the impact that it has on your photographs? Sure. I'll do this very quickly at less than uh, 60 seconds. The first job I had in leaving school, I worked for what was called the Air Ministry, which is the Ministry of Defense. And I was very good when I was younger at mathematics. I worked with a slide rule and a very primitive computer, and I was plotting missile courses between the east coast of England aimed at Russia. This was 1959. My first job was to plot altitude, distance, speed, time allotments, and the weight of the payload, the war load, the, the bomb load, and things like that. For something called the Blue Streak missile, I had two scientific officers above me, and I worked with them doing lengthy complications, equations, and things like that. The way photographers get their start? Yeah, I think so. And I did that for a year and then decided to go back. I got married when I was 18. I decided to go back to Scotland and I got a job working in the laboratory in a chocolate factory doing chemical analysis of chocolates and did that for a year. But during that year, I went and I took three night classes. Two night classes were in mathematics and I qualified to have the opportunity to go to Edinburgh University and do maths. I spent one night a week for some obscure reason, I can't even remember why, to do painting classes and drawing classes at the Edinburgh Art College in the evening for students that were outside of the normal curriculum. And I got into Dundee College of Art. It was part of St. Andrews University. And I went up there to begin a four-year course with my wife. And by that time, I had a child. I started there in 1962. I had a very disciplined education 
in different aspects of art, which involve drawing, painting, textile design, graphic design, pottery, and silversmithing. And at the end of two years, you had an opportunity to specialize. I loved graphic design, and I chose graphic design. That was my third year. And at the same time, for the first time ever, they had a class in photography that was available to you as your craft subject. So here, I had a disciplined beginning. I then continued the studies with graphic design, specializing. And as a craft subject, one day a week, I had photography. That was my first real connection with photography. And my wife bought me for my 21st birthday a small camera. And the minute I got that camera, I became really obsessed with photography. What was it about that camera? Can you try to go back? I've got no idea. All I know is that I clicked the shutter and suddenly, magically, I got negatives back that I could learn to process myself. And then, even better, I got into a dark room with a piece of white paper under an enlarger and you put it in some chemistry and lo and behold, up comes an image. Magic, black magic, I called it. Amazing, insane, beautiful. The control that you had over it, you give it too much exposure, it went black. Too little, it was white. And I was heavily involved with graphic design. I was still getting a heavy education in that. I did that for two years. And then I got into the Royal College of Art to do a master's degree. And they put me in the film school. So now I had three years education in film. So you didn't select film school? I selected graphic design school. And the head of the school requested that I consider film school because he felt that due to the photographic nature of my graphic design, that I would enjoy film school more and that I could make a, a very interesting filmmaker. And during that period of time, between 66 and 69, I studied film and television. And to this day, if you look at all of the work that I've done, you can see those seven years stamped on everything. There's art, we hope, and there's photography, there's graphics, and there's film. And that should be a connecting factor because that was my education, what I loved, and what I held on to. We'll be right back. Print is Dead is made possible by the support of the Society of Publication Designers. The SPD powers the future of visual storytelling, setting the standard for editorial excellence, and shaping the future of visual culture. For more information, visit spd.org. Now, shortly after this, you, Elizabeth, and your first son, you yes. pick up and you go to L.A. He got a, a teacher job in L.A., and I went in as her dependent. So that answers my question. I was going to say, why L.A.? Why not Paris or London? or Because that was what was offered. Right. And one thing I didn't mention that was an important part of my life, in 1966, between finishing at the art college and going to the Royal College of Art, I won a traveling scholarship to come to America. That was by IBM, and I flew into New York for the first time in my life, of course, and I met a lot of interesting people in New York, Pushpin Studios, Milton Glaser, a lot of graphic design people, interesting people. I flew from there to the design conference in Aspen. And then I went from Aspen to L.A., met people like Charles Eames. I met John Cage. And I met a lot of industrial designers, famous ones, Henry Dreyfus, the industrial designer. So it was very informing. Then I went to San Francisco, then to Chicago then to Washington, D.C., then back to Scotland, and then I packed up my bags and went down to the Royal College of Art. What's interesting about what you just said is that every time I've seen you talking to a group of designers, and presumably it seems as if you're really addressing in particular young designers, you emphasize the importance of go to galleries, go to museums, go to the opera, listen to music, listen to jazz, go to the movies all the time the importance of having kind of a liberal education, if you will, when it comes to culture. Yeah. I'm actually shocked these days that I meet a, a lot of hip people that are sadly lacking, unfortunately, in a historical education. They don't have a great knowledge of painting. They don't have a great knowledge of music from the past. 
They know famous things from the past, like the Beatles, of course. Going back further than that, they have no idea, really. You, you can mention to a young person now Tchaikovsky, and they have no idea who Tchaikovsky is. Yeah. They have no idea who that is. They've never heard the name. Nobody said to them the word Tchaikovsky. And people listening to this podcast would say, well, that's ridiculous. I can tell you it's true. That's a true story. And then they can say things, well, I've never heard of Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And then they say to me, ah, well, that was before my time. Well, I can see I've got a shot for you. It was before my damn time. It was way before my time. <laughs> Kids look uh, at you and I and think there was nothing before our time. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so, you know, everything is available to you. Everything. If you don't know what impressionism is, you can hit a button and you can get 2.8 million pieces of information on impressionism. Mm -hmm. At 7 o'clock in the evening, you can switch on your computer and if you want to study for five hours, you can cram quite a lot of information on Impressionism, and that can help you in your own work. Now, let's go back to you, Elizabeth, your son. You moved to L.A. Yes. You moved because she has a teaching job there. Right. It sounds as if, from the way you describe it, you had one significant introduction when you got to L.A., and that was to somebody yes. at Max Factor. I had a connection and advertising agency. And that person knew the head of the international division of Max Factor, and he gave me that introduction. Okay, now you're with this guy, and tell the story about what led basically to the first work you had ever done and gotten a U.S. dollar for. I went in, and I had a, a, a little portfolio of slides and things, and he said, I love these pictures, but there's one problem. I said, what's that? He said, you don't really have any beauty shots here, and this is Max Factor, and we sell cosmetics. But I like your pictures. And he said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay for a model for you for an hour. And there's a lot of dresses in the closet there. You can take a dozen dresses if you want and book a model for an hour. And let's see what you can do. So he said, go to the advertising agency. And I picked a model, uh, a blonde. And I said, I'd like to meet her. So the following day, I went back and I met her. And I said to her, is there any chance we could work a whole day, and I'll give you some pictures for your portfolio. So she said, what time do you want to start? I said, 8 o'clock. So I was there with my camera, no assistant, no lights, nothing except a model who did her own makeup. I had dressed as a model and my camera and invested all of the money that we had available, which bought 60 rolls of film, and I had a car. And I had done a little bit of location driving around because I'd only been there for a couple of months. And I came across a beautiful field of yellow grass, and I started off there, and I did close-up shots, I did wide shots, and I went down to the beach, and I did all these shots with her in a dress in the ocean. I shot all 60 rolls of film in about 10 hours, and two days later, I went into Max Factor with the 60 rolls, and, and of course, the obvious silly question was, how did you manage to do 60 rolls of film in an hour? <laughs> and I said, well, to be honest, I didn't. She's just charging you for an hour, no more. And I talked her into the whole day. And he looked at the picture and he said, just sit down now, I'll, I'll be right back. And he left for a long time. And all I was concerned about was he going to pay for the 60 rolls of film and the processing, which was all the money we had. And he came back and said, I have good news for you. We will buy three, and the national division is buying two of these shots because we have a new product coming out called California Blonde, and we can use these pictures. So he said, I'll give you a P.O. for the pictures and your expenses and any gas receipts that you have will pay for. And he didn't tell me how much, and I left there with a piece of paper, and I opened it up, and when I looked at it quickly... I saw that it was expenses plus $150 per shot times five, $750, which I was very happy with. I thought that was great. I was very excited. I got home and I asked Liz, my wife, if she could borrow a typewriter and type the bill out. And when she was typing the bill out, she said, wait a minute, it's not $150, it's $1,500. <laughs> and at this point, her salary was about $3,500 a year. So therefore, doing the math on that, you'll see that was $7,500. And that was a fortune. And at that point, we said, well, we can't charge him that. It's obviously a mistake. Nobody would pay that much money. 
And I said, we don't want to be deported. So I'll go in and speak to him. So I went the next day and I asked for an appointment and I waited for him for half an hour. I saw him and I said, I just want to talk to you about the money that you paid me. And then he said to me, $1,500 a shot is all I have at the moment. But next time I can pay you more. Welcome. So come to in other words, Albert, <laughs> that was the beginning of my financial career. And uh, that was shocking, of course, when I got back to tell my wife. And by that time, we had two kids. We went out and went to McDonald's as a celebration. So you go on to become a pretty big deal. You have, I think, one of the largest studios in L.A., but no sooner have you done that than you, Elizabeth, and your two sons pick up and move to New York. Yeah, but the story I just told you is that approximately 1971. Yep. And in 73, I did the, the shot that's quite well known of Alfred Hitchcock holding the plucked goose. That began to change my direction and fortune. And we were running this huge studio in Los Angeles. And in 1974, I got an agent in New York and I had a small studio in New York and a large studio in LA. And I would say 5% of my work in 74 was New York. The rest was LA. By the time it got to 76, about 85% of my work was New York and only 15% was, was L.A. Was that so intentional that, on your part? Yes. And then what happened was we decided to sell the L.A. studio and we moved to New York. And then we bought a townhouse in the Upper East Side and converted the townhouse into two-floor studio and two-floors apartment. And by the end of 77... We were 100% in New York. Now, given the, the, the theme of this podcast, Print is Dead, we have to go back and point out that in the mid-70s, you're in the middle of one of the real heydays, if not the heyday, of magazine publishing in the United States. Well, there was money everywhere. There was money everywhere. People were starting new ventures constantly. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about kind of the work you did for not so much the fashion magazines, but the mainstream magazines, general interest magazines, like the Rolling Stones of the World, for example, and some of the art directors or photo editors that you worked with. There was, starting with the Alfred Hitchcock, I always held on to portraiture. I was interested in portraiture. At that time, I was doing about 80% fashion. I was doing lots of different things. I was doing still lifes for Clinique, photographing perfume bottles. I was photographing a drop of water exploding on top of a lipstick, which was not easy in those days. Now it would be a piece of cake. But in those days, you were putting it on one piece of film. Nowadays, you just shoot a water explosion and stick it on top. They, they were different times. So I was doing that, plus I was doing lots of portraiture, and the portraiture led to Rolling Stone magazine, and I began working heavily with them and doing a lot of covers for them. I was working with Laurie Kretocheville, who was the photo editor mm -hmm. there. And Fred Woodward was the art director. He was a brilliant art director and typographer, very smart guy. He won award after award for the design of the magazine. And in parallel, I was working for Vogue's all over Europe. And then I got a contract for three years to shoot every single cover of French Vogue. Right. Every one. I was the only one that was shooting cover after cover for them. And I was working in Paris, and the kind of people I was working right alongside was Helmut Newton, Guy Bourdin, and guest photographers like Cecil Beaton. Let's go back for one second to Rolling Stone. Fred Woodward, I'm curious, what was your ideal relationship when you were out doing an editorial assignment, which is very different than working commercially? The editorial assignment would like you to photograph Mike Tyson. Up-and-coming boxer, he's 18, but he's slated to become a big name in boxing. And he's in the Catskills. You have to drive up there and photograph him. Who is this for? Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone, okay. So that was how the commissions are done. I shot for that issue, which was the 25th anniversary issue, which we did the cover for, called The Heroes of Rock and Roll. And every photographer was allocated a certain number of people to photograph. I got Mick Jagger, Chuck Berry, B.B. King... They asked me to photograph Graceland, and I photographed Elvis Presley's gold lamy suit, which is the one they put on the cover. Yeah. And a lot of these things were different kind of commissions. You had great freedom. They just expected a great shot of Mick Jagger or something interesting of Mike Tyson or 
B.B. King, uh, and I suggested to them that I photograph him in concert. So I went up to Connecticut where he was playing, and I did concert footage. Albert, for younger listeners who never saw the Mike Tyson cover, explain that shoot, because that was brilliant. I don't think they used it on the cover, because at that point, Mike Tyson was a big-ish name, but it was up-and-coming name. So the Mike Tyson cover, basically... He had an amazing physique, and he was easy to photograph. I did portraiture on him. And just towards the end, I got the idea, because my father is a boxer, and once said, a really good boxer has a really good strong neck. And if you have a good strong neck, there's less chance that you'll get knocked out. So I, I asked Mike to turn around, and I photographed the back of his head with his neck. And he'd been working out. There was water droplets in his hair and sweat on his neck. And uh, I did it as a, as a silhouette from behind. And it went on to become a well-known shot because, strangely enough, you recognized it as Mike Tyson from the back. Yes, I remember that. <laughs> but as time went on, European magazines picked up that shot and began to run it, and they ran it as a cover. So the shot became very famous. So that comes uh, back that, to your emphasis on the concept. Right. Yes, sure. You An idea. In the same way that Harper's Bazaar, when they asked me to photograph Alfred Hitchcock, they asked me to photograph a goose because he was giving a recipe for a goose for the Christmas issue of Harper's Bazaar to the magazine because he was a gourmet chef. And they asked me to photograph him holding a plate with a roast goose on it. And that's when I said to them, isn't it better that we take a plucked goose and he's holding it by the neck like he strangled it himself. It seems more Hitchcock. And I can also put some Christmas decoration around the neck of the goose to make that a little bit more interesting because it's a Christmas issue. And the magazine loved that idea. But that's concept. Also, for a young photographer, you know, you're just happy to get a damn job. So in the case of Alfred Hitchcock holding the plate, in the end, I would have tried to get it together to have the plucked goose with the head and all of that, as well as the plate, if they'd insisted on it. But luckily enough, they said, we just love the plucked goose, forget the plate. So I was able to concentrate on that. Graphic design training was part of what that was. In other words, it's concept training. And I'm not saying that every single damn thing has that brilliant concept behind it. It comes in handy once in a while. Uh, But a lot of your shots, one of the most photographed actors in Hollywood is Jack Nicholson. And I think my favorite photograph of Nicholson ever taken was a Rolling Stone cover you did. It might have been your first Rolling Stone cover. And you photograph him up in Aspen. It's snowing. He's sitting outside covered with snow. And you captured that Jack Nicholson shit-eating grin that he gets, that little boy grin. It was taken in the garden of his house in Aspen. I turned up in the morning at the time that we were given, and he answered the door. And he was like in kind of a rumpled T-shirt with shorts with his hair all over the place. And he said, who the hell are you? And and I was there with my assistant. And I said, well, we're here from Rolling Stone. And he said, what for? I said, to photograph you. And then he was like, really? And he said, God, that's right. That's today? I said, yes, yeah, today. We came from New York. And then he said, oh, you better come in. You want a coffee? So it was nice. And then... Just as we came in, we arrived. He looked out the window and he said, oh my God, thank God. And it started to snow. Aspen had a problem because they didn't have enough snow. And Aspen without snow was not good. And it just started to snow heavily. And he was just jumping up and down. He was like a kid with the snow. And we then went out in the garden. He put on a jacket and a scarf and his hat. And he went out in the garden and he was sitting there. And I said, I need a little bit more snow to make sense of it. He said, sure. Then he went into the house and his housekeeper arrived and he said to the housekeeper, cook these two boys some bacon and eggs and give them some coffee, which they'd already given me, and I'll go out and sit in the snow. So I actually sat in his kitchen having breakfast (laughs) outside in that chair, just quite still. And I went out a couple of times and said, I'm almost finished. He said, don't worry about it. It's fine. And then I went out. And of course, by that time, he had quite a lot of snow on him. And the snow was lying in the ground a lot and so on. And I did that shot. That was the scenario behind it. That was a great photograph. uh, I've photographed him several times. And I did the multiple mirror shot, which is, I think, equally well known. Yes, of course. uh, Where you see him blowing a smoke ring. And that, that was 
a concept shot, when you set up eight mirrors like that, and Jack Nicholson's face suddenly appears on eight mirrors in your camera at the one time, the concept, you can do that shot and he can come in and you can get him out of there in five minutes and you have the shot. Yeah. In other words, when you have a concept like that, then it helps you create a powerful image that's original. That came in very handy with somebody that we were very close to at Inc. Magazine, Steve Jobs, who notoriously hated seeing images of himself and hated being photographed. He detested it. And you ended up with an iconic image of him that was everywhere when it was announced that Steve They used that as the obituary picture. Yeah. Apple did. And he loved that picture. He told me he loved it. And of course, I thought he was just being nice, you know, like, like oh, well, I'm glad you like it. But then apparently he kept that Polaroid on his desk and he said, when I go use that picture. And they called us the day he died for the picture. And then later that night, it popped up in my phone that he had died. We'll be right back. Stack, the independent magazine club, delivers a different publication every month to our subscribers all around the world. You never know what we're going to send next, but you do know it will be a beautiful, intelligent, independent magazine that deserves a place on your shelf. We'd love to start sending something your way, so go to stackmagazines.com to sign up and start receiving a surprise magazine every month. When I mentioned the people that I was going to be having a conversation with you for the podcast, everybody said, man, if you have never been to his studio, when you go, you have to ask him to see his diaries. You will not believe them. You'll think they're fiction. And I said, why? And he said, because nobody alive can get that amount of work done. And when you and I were talking, you said, well, this is not a typical day, but let me tell you about one day that started in Paris and ended in L.A. You started with a shoot with Catherine Deneuve. Can you tell it, that story? It started in Paris, ended in L.A., but by the way, there was an advertising job in New York in between. So how did so, you pull that off? I think if I did it now, that might be the last job <laughs> of my life. I wouldn't be able to do it now. And how did I pull it off? I slept on the plane. Okay. That's how I pulled it off. Because the flight from Paris into New York was a Concorde flight. Three hours, I slept on the plane. And then there was a flight, six and a half hours, from New York to L.A., and I slept on that flight. So I did it by sleeping. That was the secret behind it. No, but it was a lot of stress. And to do an advertising job after you know getting up in Paris at 6 o'clock in the morning to set up the studio for Catherine Deneuve and then do an advertising job in New York and then get to L.A. and so on to do that is... is so not... you go from Catherine Deneuve to, I believe your L.A. shoot was Frank with Zappa. Frank Zappa and Beefheart. Yes, Captain Beefheart. Captain Beefheart, yes. <laughs> yeah, I photographed a couple of times. You and I were talking about your studio and you use that as a vehicle to talk about how your business, the business of being Albert Watson, has really changed thanks to your son. Well, thanks to your photography and your son. But that's an astonishing story. Can you tell the story about your son coming to you after he comes to work for you and hiring you for two days? Well, I think the idea was that people over the years were asking, can we buy a shot from you? And I would say, sure. And then they'd call me three months later and said, what happened to the shot? Sometimes a month later, sometimes six weeks, and sometimes three months. And they say, I never got that shot. I'm happy to pay you for it. And basically, I was shooting all the time. I loved printing in the darkroom, but just to get to that print in an evening, to print a series of orders for prints, it, it took me forever. And I did do it. It wasn't well organized particularly. And my son came on board. He was already a very successful journalist. He was the head editor at Associated Press for sports. And I offered him a job, and I was so happy he took it. And he realized early on that there had to be an idea of booking me to get into the darkroom and say, right, you have a job. Here's the money. Get into the darkroom and print. So he was paying he wanted, print around. Yeah, he wanted me to allocate the time to make a transition from working commercially and editorially to make a transition that I was happy about. I was not forced. I wanted it. That's why I brought him in. And to make that transition into getting into the darkroom to print, making prints and selling prints. So at that point, I would say that was 5% of our business because everything was geared towards shootings right. and making money from shootings. And you had a huge studio back then, right? Huge studio. We had 14 people working for us. 
was a big operation. I loved it. We were shooting all the time. We had a really beautiful studio. We had a building that was 26,000 square feet. The apartment was 13,000 square feet. And the the studio was 13,000 square feet. So I could work until 10 o'clock at night. I just had to go up the stairs and I was in my apartment. It, it, it was a work horse of a place. So fast forward to today, you downsize your studio and... What percentage of your revenue today comes from Prince? Uh, it's probably closer to what it, what I said the other way around. I think now it's about 70 to 30% now. I don't have exact figures right. on that. But obviously from time to time, we still do some big job. Big jobs come in. It can be a big project with the city of Rome or it can be a Pirelli calendar. A big job comes in. So therefore the income is still very good from photography. You're also legendary for personal projects. Of course. Uh, at Las That's Vegas, exactly. which comes the, the strip. Morocco, with an astonishing story, if you want to tell that. They wanted to do a, a book on Morocco. They wanted to call it Morocco. I talked them into calling it Maroc, which is the French name for Morocco. Right. It just made it a little bit more interesting than just putting Morocco on it. And it's a very tricky thing. Let's say you were asked to do a book on Paris then you got to photograph the Eiffel Tower. If you do a book on London, then you got to do Big Ben. If you do a book on Rome, you got to do the Colosseum and so on. So you got to do Morocco, then you got to do camels or something. So to do an intellectual book on something like that, you have to be very careful. You have to have a plan. You have to do a lot of research. That was the last big job I did on film. You know, a big job. I did lots of jobs on film after that, but this was a bigger job. And it was sponsored by the then prince, who was shortly to become the king of Morocco. And he was involved in the project and very supportive. And it was great fun to do. He said, I have two jets. If you need one, why don't you just fly all over Morocco in my jet? It's much quicker for you to do that. So the project was well financed and well put together. We organized it well, and we had very good support. So it was a green project. And the interesting thing that happened at the end of it, they had done a book in the previous year, a photographer had done Cuba, and this was meant to be part of the series. And when I was working on the post-production, the Cuba book came out, and I thought it was terrible. Not the photographs, but I thought the production on it was horrendous. It was a kind of a cheap paperback, and it was not good quality. The printing was not good quality. I was shocked. And fees had already been allocated for me to do the project. So the only way that we could get out of it was we took our fee and put it into the book itself. So we turned it around and instead of this being printed on a cheap lithographic system, it went on a 10 color press. It went on a press that had a four color black and white, it had four color, and it also had two plates of varnish. So we put the money back into the project, didn't make any money at all, but we ended up with a very well-done project. Even the cover was what they call a French fold cover, which is folded back on itself so that it doesn't tear at all. It, it was actually a beautifully printed book, beautifully put together. I did a lot of the design, but I didn't do the typography. I had a, a very good typographer come in and do that. Given the span of the kind of work that you've done, in almost every category of photography. You look at your career and how can you not ask the question, what, what advice do you have to a young person today who has discovered that black magic that you talked about the first time he or she picked up a camera and wants to pursue a career in photography, editorial, commercial? What advice do you have for them? Well, that's quite a difficult question, really, because are you prepared to give up just about everything. You say, you know, you don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. To do what I did, all the eggs were in one basket, mm -hmm. and that was the photography basket. So there's a, a basket there labeled photography, and all the eggs went in that basket. I remember speaking to Peter Lindbergh once, and he said, what are you doing this summer? I said, oh, I'm doing this job, that job, and, and then I have to go to LA and do a movie poster. And he said, but what are you doing for your holidays? And I said, oh, I don't, I don't do holidays and very much. I, I take a week off at Christmas and sometimes, if I'm lucky, the first week in January. And he said, but you don't take six weeks off in August, September, July. 
six weeks. I said, I've never done that in my life. And he said, oh, I can't do without that. He said, I, I need those six weeks to do no photography. And of course, I'd never done that in my life. I was kind of astonished that every year he took six weeks off, six weeks. And you say six weeks, six times seven, that's 42 days. Where did this come from? You hardwired this way? I, I think part of your life, you're pretty destitute and poor and worried about food for the family. When you're destitute and worried about money year in, year out, year in, year out. And that goes on for 11 years, 365 times 11, a lot of stress. So therefore, I almost never turned down a job. Right. Uh, and someone would say, well, your son graduates from university tomorrow. Are you going? And I said, well, I'd like to, but I'm busy. Y you know, as far as my kids were concerned, the bad news is your father's not going to be there. But the good news is you won't have a student loan program. Yeah. You know, that is, that's the good news. How did Elizabeth handle all this? I could never have done it without her. And I could never have done it with the support of the whole family. But especially Elizabeth, she was the one that was always encouraging and working and loved it when I was busy and helped me and did the casting. And she was the agent and booked in jobs, took care of all of the difficult stuff. And without Liz, it would never have happened. It, it would never have happened. I, I might have been an art teacher back in Scotland or something without my wife. Now, speaking of you and Elizabeth, I mentioned yesterday that I was absolutely enamored of your home on Warren Street, which I've never been to. I'll just repeat one more time, Albert. You've never invited me, but I saw it in the pages of the New York Times real estate section when you put it up for sale. I don't know, it was 2016 or something like that. And what I loved about it was not, you know, there are a lot of lavish places and places like New York. But it looked as if every square inch of that home, you and Elizabeth, intentionally designed. Yeah. And then I was ecstatic to hear yesterday when we were talking, you said, oh, we didn't sell it. We took it off the market. Yeah. Well, we didn't because, you know, it's 650 feet off the ground. And from it, I can see the Hudson. I can see the East River, the Empire State Building, the new Freedom Tower. I, I can see the Brooklyn Bridge. And there's a huge 2,000 square feet terrace. And the problem was we couldn't find anything that was as fabulous as that, really. That was a problem. And eventually you come to the point where you say, why are you moving at all? And you say, well, I want to move to a bigger place, a better place. But it was already a big place. It was already 4,000 square feet, you know, with a terrace that was 2,000 square feet on top of that. It, it was enough. Enough was enough. We just didn't sell it. We we're very happy we didn't sell it. And uh, right now, I, I'm just redoing it, actually. It's going to be redone for the first time since we did it the first time. So it's now going to be done again. I can't wait to see it in person. It'll be spectacular. <laughs> Very beautiful. A little bit more Zen and Japanese looking. What images of yours hang on the wall in your place? There's only actually three shots. I, I never pushed to put anything up on the wall there, but there were three that my wife like a, a comic strip series that I did of monkeys. It looks like a comic strip of monkeys, and there's a big print of that. There's another monkey in a mask where I persuaded the monkey to shout at me, you know, to scream at me. Well, I know that. Image. The combination of the monkey screaming at me with a gold mask on, I, uh, I did a graphic treatment on that, an ink treatment. I've done a lot of work with inks and paint and so on, and combined the two. And that's up at the end of a corridor as a big print. And then in our bedroom, which is next to the Warhols that I have, there's a, a, a large print of something called the Todd Motel in Las Vegas in color yeah. at night. And that's large in the bedroom. And if you remember the pictures, below it is a Bugatti couch. At one point, if I recall the New York Times article, you also had another photo from your book, The Strip, which was the, the car in the junkyard. Remember that? Oh, one? yes. Yeah. We, I think that at one point it was kind of pinned in the wall. We never had it there permanently like the other ones. And there's a beautiful Chinese painting, which I just adore, uh, of a street scene in China at nighttime, oil painting. And I love that. It's beautiful. And then I have a couple by Cortez on the wall. Beautiful. There's the tulip in Mondrian's apartment. That's beautiful. I have that. And I also have Eugene Smith. So I have some photography, but not a lot. So here's my final question. Okay. When I was getting ready for the podcast, I revisited the New York Times 
a piece about your co-op. And uh, there was that photo from the junkyard, kind of a beautiful dark maroon color. And it reminded me a little bit, don't be offended by this, of a hockney. And it made me wonder, what photographers do you love? What photographers have you been influenced by? I was always fascinated by Richard Avedon and Irving Penn, like most photographers. I was very impressed by them. But after that, there's about 320 photographers that are my favorite. There, there's so many photographers historically when you go back, you know. I mean, I always liked Guy Bourdin because he was so unique. I always liked him in Paris. And some of these guys became the victim when there was that transition. Irving Penn was the only one that they held on to. But if you remember, there was a period there where Vogue didn't use Richard Avedon. And Guy Bourdin's contract with French Vogue was not renewed. And of course, that instruction came from New York. And they said, we don't want these kind of pictures anymore. And the big thing that was beginning to happen was the cult of the celebrity. And that's something that we didn't speak about. But you look back at Vogue covers from the 70s, and a lot of them were models. You know, it would be this model, that model, and so on. But bit by bit, the cult of the celebrity began to creep in there more until celebrities began taking over. And it might be a supermodel, but it was never an up-and-coming model that nobody had ever heard of. Right, right. It would have to be Beyonce or something like that. And it began, as I was doing the contract I had with the French Vogue, it began to come into that. And then it began to be me photographing Isabella Gianni or photographing Catherine Deneuve and so on. The cult of the celebrity began to creep in everywhere to to every magazine. And as a piece of trivia for you, Alexander Lieberman was so excited. He told me about Vanity Fair and he said, Vanity Fair is going to be the Bible of the art. It's going to be stories of every museum in America and every important gallery and it's going to be about artists and the life of artists. And he said, of course, we'll also do musicians and opera singers and things like that. And they brought the magazine out. It was a reissue, of course. But when they brought it out, it was thick. And then next month it was thinner. And then next month it was thinner still. And it was going nowhere. And of course, they realized at that point that People magazine was selling $4 million a week. So they decided to turn Vanity Fair into a celebrity, sophisticated gossip with good writers, but there had to be something gossipy and so on. And it ceased to be the Bible of the arts. It became the Bible of gossip. Yeah, that's pervasive. The last vestiges were business magazines. Yeah, sure. yeah, business celebrity, you know, it's everywhere. Well, yeah, it had to be Musk or Steve Jobs. I did a project for Fortune that was fascinating where I did the most powerful people in America, and Steve Jobs was one of those people. I did Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and Bernanke, Treasury, Condoleezza Rice. I did portraits of them. It was the power issue. So, yeah, it was all about celebrity. For more information, visit Albert Watson's website, albertwatson.net, or follow at Albert Watson Photography on Instagram. If you'd like to connect more deeply with our guests, be sure to visit our website, where we have complete transcripts of all our interviews, along with portfolios, archival photos, links, and other great information. Visit longliveprint.co interviews for more. In other news, we've got swag. Yep, you can get Print is Dead merch on our site at longliveprint.co slash shop. All purchases go directly to supporting the podcast. Check back often. We're adding new stuff all the time. And finally, make sure you subscribe to our newsletter by using the form on our homepage. It's the best way to stay up to date on all of the Print is Dead news and to receive advance notice on the latest episodes. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a member of the Hub & Spoke Audio Collective, a nonprofit association of audio storytellers dedicated to promoting and sustaining high-quality independent podcasting, including Ministry of Ideas, a podcast dedicated to investigating and illuminating the ideas that shape our society.
An initiative of the Harvard Divinity School, Ministry of Ideas is simply the best podcast out right now, according to The Guardian. It explores topics like whiteness and class in America, selfies, meritocracy, comedy and politics, and the obsession with efficiency. MOI makes us think differently about the world. Learn more at ministryofideas.org. Print is dead. Long live print is made possible by support of listeners like you. If you'd like to contribute to keeping the podcast going, there are two easy ways. One, become a sustaining patron by making a monthly donation. Or two, make a one-time donation in the amount that works best for you. Visit printisdead.co slash support for more information. Print is Dead, Long Live Print is a production of Modus Operandi Design. For more information, visit our website, printisdead.co. Or if you're an optimist, longliveprint.co. Follow us on social media at printisdeadpod. Please give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. It really helps. Thanks very much for listening.